Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, Johnny Pitts explores the origins of his nonfiction travelogue, Afropean Notes from Black Europe. Johnny is a multiple award winning writer, photographer, and broadcast journalist. So I'm going to read a section of the book that I don't read very often, actually, um, because it's really towards the end of the book. And it's where I've kind of left behind some of the colder places like like Moscow and Stockholm. And I'm I'm feeling quite good about the journey. I feel like all the people I've met have have given me a bit of confidence and and, and I've learned a lot along my journey and and, and it's coming to the end. But having said all that, I'm I'm exhausted and I'm running out of money. And I think this uh, passage sort of lets you understand um, where I was at towards the end of the journey, sort of behind the scenes in a kind of weird way. It was carnival time across Portugal, which meant a series of epic parties over the best part of a month that only ended when people felt like it. But carnival was a celebration of the passing of the seasons. The chill of northern and eastern Europe was already a distant memory, the spring equinox heralding the end of my trip. The train out of Lisbon left at six in the morning just before the weather took a turn for the worse. The April showers had arrived early, and it rained ceaselessly for the rest of my trip. Watching the train cruise past cork trees hanging in the spring mist, I dozed off. And other than changing for a connection in Faro, pretty much slept until Seville, where I arrived at seven in the evening. From the comfort of my own home months earlier, with my feet up, probably, sitting by a burning radiator, I decided that the last two days of my interrail pass would be sufficient to make it from Lisbon to Gibraltar, where I saw myself concluding my trip heroically at Europa Point, from which, on a clear day, it was possible to stare at the shores of Africa from the shores of Europe. In order to save time and money, I decided my future self wouldn't need anywhere to sleep in Seville, that I'd be fine hanging out in the streets until the first coach left for Algeciras the next morning. But of course I hadn't factored in any variables, the rain and fog which had hung over the passing landscape since Portugal, a hangover from the night before. I'd boarded my train straight from a final blowout at a huge Afrobeat party. Or the seedy civilians of the night. I wandered around the empty streets of this pretty Andalusian city, which looked as though it was floating among low-flying clouds, and, beautiful as it was at that time of night, Seville was also surreal and unsettling. An aggressive, incoherent, drunken old Spanish man picked a fight with me. A middle-aged curb crawler mistook me for a male prostitute and tried to pick me up. And at about three in the morning, I saw the diffuse red glow of some handbrake lights in the distance. A lone, gleaming white Porsche 911 was idling at a deserted intersection. The driver had fallen into a stupor at the wheel, slumped forward from his leather sports seat, his window down and all the doors unlocked. You're reading all this in the form of a neat little package, an edited book, probably with a fairly assured-looking author photograph of me on the back cover. But there and then, in the early hours of the morning in San Sebastian Station, and after five months of self-funded budget travel, my hair was starting to dread. My shoes were falling to bits. I'd begun talking to myself, and some of my late-night travel notes were becoming increasingly oblique. 
as a solo traveller in search of black Europe, I'd start to get used to strange places at strange times, occupied by strange people, because my search often led me to black people who were forced to work unsociable hours, or living out on the periphery, or forced into travelling on the cheap coach at stupid o'clock in the morning. Regular men and women shunted by prejudice into the surreality of poverty. Educated immigrants sharing work shifts and geographies with alcoholics, addicts and criminals. It had been reported that there are abnormally high mental health issues among the black communities in Europe, but my travels had largely been sustained by a very steadfast sanity which so many black men and women had managed to maintain despite often living under such bizarre conditions. There's an official genesis of this book and then an unofficial one. Um, they're both true, but the official one is kind of easier to understand. And, and it's that I was sensing tensions um, among the people that I knew. I grew up in a very multicultural area on the outskirts of Sheffield um, in Firth Park. Um, and and just noticing real disjunction uh, among communities that had previously kind of held me together. Um, and, and that was, yeah, really to do with the fallout of the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, you know, when people have less money, there's always generally a, a kind of a rise in tension and people are looking for, for scapegoats and guinea pigs. Um, but really, probably it goes even earlier, goes back earlier than that, maybe... I think the, the real fracture was probably around September the 11th and seeing the, the kind of the war on terrorism and the vilification of the Muslim community. Um, I grew up in a large Yemeni community and I noticed that that really changed everything. That's the kind of official beginning of, of, of this book. That's why I wanted to try and piece everything back together and think about what went wrong and how, as a black community, we might be able to sustain ourselves uh, ourselves in this uh, kind of very politically charged climate. The unofficial story is kind of more personal. And that's, I remember in the early 2000s, I'd just uh, had my first job and been sacked. And I was kind of wandering the streets uh, of Sheffield, spending my days kind of, um, I mean, it's when where I started photography, really, trying to make sense of my days, kind of going nowhere. Um, I, I, I quit college, been kicked out of my job. And, you know, I left school feeling very uh, unconfident, you know. Uh, you know, there's a real kind of anti-intellectual environment in, in the, uh, you know, uh, area of Sheffield. I grew up in, in many ways. Um and somebody spotted me walking along the road and said, a, a complete stranger, and said, hey, um, it's, it, it's you. Uh, do you remember the, uh, the, the train to Frankfurt? And um, I was like, the train to Frankfurt? And this stranger mistook me for, for somebody that they thought they saw on a train to Frankfurt. And that, to me, was incredibly kind of beguiling, this notion that there was somebody who looked like me and I had a, my big afro uh, back then, um, who was on a train in Fra you know, heading to Frankfurt. And that was so evocative to me. And I decided, you know, uh, 
probably subconsciously at the beginning, but, uh, but, but more consciously later on that I wanted to put myself on that train to Frankfurt and I wanted to see who that person might have been, not, not literally, but figuratively, you know, who, you know, who are the, the black, the members of the black community living in a place like Frankfurt. I didn't, I passed through Frankfurt on my actual trip, but, but that really sparked something imaginative for me, that encounter. You know, I started to think, well, well, how do I piece together or make sense of uh, the cultures that have sustained me uh, growing up as somebody with, with brown skin in, in this corner of, of what was then very much still Europe, you know, geographically still is. But, um, but, but you know, maybe culturally, uh, you know, not so much after after Brexit. But um, and I came across this word Afropean in in, in the realms of music. So going back to those those days when I was kind of wandering Sheffield without a job, going nowhere, one of the things I'd do is I'd, I remember spending midweek afternoons, really strange kind of atmosphere where everybody else seems to be going somewhere. You know, kids are going to school, people are going to work, students are studying. And I wasn't, I was mooching around, but I'd have like a little unofficial itinerary around all the music stores. And it was right like I caught the last couple of years where independent music stores still existed. Um, and uh, and I'd go around all these different music stores and I'd, I'd just buy random CDs that kind of looked interesting with any spare money that I had. Um, and usually I'd head straight to the bargain bin where you could pick it up for like a, a pound, you could get an album. And, and it was during this period that I discovered some amazing, uh, what I would describe as Afropean musicians. One of the first artists was a Swedish Jamaican singer-songwriter called Stephen Simmons, who uh, is just incredible. He worked with people like Raphael Sadiq and, and created a really haunting album that sounds very much like soul music, but has a European element. Some of the instruments uh, that he uses, is, you know, it almost is like sort of ambient music from Europe mixed with mixed with the neo soul I, I love that album and i discovered that on the you know i thought oh this looks interesting and then also uh, the work of zap mama a belgian congolese uh, vocal uh, quartet at that time but really just based around uh, marie Dolm, uh, the lead singer and um, and and marie Dolm actually coined this term afropean uh, her first album was adventures in afropea so i discovered this word afropean uh, in the realms of, of kind of music and fashion and it was just very attractive to me, um, especially after having this encounter where I was thinking of, of what it means to be black in Europe on this train to Frankfurt. Uh, suddenly I had a word that might be used to bring us all together and to bring these experiences together. And that was Afropean. The, the problem with Afropean after a while is that I start to realise that while it was very... Um, utopian in a way while it was something to try and aim for it, it didn't chime exactly with my own experience which is a very working class uh, experience so I wanted to sort of see what Afropean might mean outside the realms of music and fashion um, what it might mean when it didn't involve you know a, a publicists and art direction and, uh, and that's when I started to really think about my own journey and what that might look like and where I might go to try and work out what Afropean means for, for everyday black people in Europe. So fast forward a, a couple of years and, and I've, I've kind of pieced together an idea 
and it'd be a, a train journey through Europe's black communities. And, and when I've nailed it down to this, I'm like, this is great, right? I'm going to get like a 300 grand advance. I'm going to pitch it around and, and I'm going to be fighting people off for this amazing idea that's, you know, and nobody was interested. Nobody, not in any capacity, um, you know. <laughs> and I remember getting in touch with one publisher who said, oh, it's already been done and mentioned Carol Phillips's European tribe, which was like published around the year I was born, you know. Uh, and it's as if though, you know, the, the, the black community can only have one one book about a certain thing. Uh, and our books are, are very different um, anyway. Um, so, yeah, you know, nobody was interested. And so I thought, right, I'll set up uh, a Facebook page and just do it casually. And, OK, it's not going to get published. And it's not going to be this huge, uh, huge best-selling book. But um, but that's not what it should be about anyway. It should be about the community. Uh, the community should come first. And so I thought, well, let me build a community online. And, and it was amazing how quickly uh, through this word Afropean, which almost, you know, I don't want to... You've got to be careful, haven't we, about like neoliberal algorithms. But in some ways, Afropean does work as a kind of neat hashtag. You know, it was like, oh, it's whole and unhyphenated. And and it was like a, a portal for people, you know, people could latch onto it. And immediately encoded in the, in the word is it, it's kind of all of the things I was trying to suggest. As messy as all those things were, Afropean was kind of simple and people could 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 come to it and, uh, and and then complicate it and and that's what happened very quickly you know it, we ended up with about sort of 10,000 uh, uh, followers on on uh, Facebook um, and then um, through this kind of community that was thriving we uh, we got some funding to create a website and and there were other people who were very interested in it. Uh, Yomi Bazue, who is an amazing um, uh, like coder uh, and is our tech guy now and then uh, originally Nat Alumin, Nina Kamara is somebody else who joined us later on from the community. But Nat and Yomi, um, when I applied for funding, it meant that I could set up a proper website and together, you know, we, nobody was getting paid for anything, but um, it meant that we could we could work on something and create a, a, an official website and try and reach out to members of the community to write uh, pieces, uh, you know, essays that maybe nowhere else was commissioning. And that's certainly the case for me. It, you know, the only place that would, <laughs> feels embarrassing to say this, but the only place that would publish my writing was uh, was the place I set up myself, you know, uh, which was uh, afropean.com. Um, and, 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 you know, that's where it all began, really. Um, is, and then when I started to have some kind of, uh, I guess I could show metrics, you know, that book business stuff. And that's when I could then approach a publisher. Uh, and that's when people sort of started to become interested in it. Um, but it was quite nice because it just meant that like this book really did spring out of, a, a you know, a community rather than me going off by myself. And I think initially I, I had in mind maybe a kind of coffee table type book of success stories. I'd take photographs, you know, with the shallow depth of field and almost like Humans of New York style and, and just tell these kind of quite positive stories of the black experience in Europe. Um, again, but which would completely um, simplify my own experience, which was, you know, not glamorous at all, really. This book was like jumping off a cliff in the darkness and hoping for a soft landing. <laughs> you know, um, I, there was uh, no real plan. And um, I just thought, I'm, I need to get out of here and I need to do this book. It's now or never, you know. 
And it really was, looking back, it, it, you know, thank God I did it, you know, um, because I wouldn't have been able to do it now. This is a book, I have, you know, two young daughters now and uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that kind of trip now. Um, so it was a trip very much of its time. And I set out and I, you know, and basically I, I, I thought I'll be on the road until I run out of money. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I had a loose idea of when I was going to come back. Um, as mentioned in, 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 you know, in the short piece that I, I read to you, um, you know, there were like these points where I thought, okay, well, I'll end at Europa Point where you can look out from Europe and see the, the coast of Africa. Uh, that seemed like uh, sort of an interesting place to to finish the journey, um, and then really I was just I wanted to I suppose go to places where I knew there was this legacy of colonialism, you know they, you know you got to go to Portugal <laughs> if you if you're going to deal with the black uh, culture and community in Europe you have to go to France, you know and then and then there were some I, I suppose places that I went to just out of curiosity, uh, like uh, Moscow, you know, I didn't necessarily have to go to Moscow to deal with the black community. But then having said that, you know, I, I'd, I'd read and I knew through my dad that actually Russia or the USSR was was at one point considered a bit of a safe haven for um, for the black community. Um, and, and, and then, of course, you have the way that, um, you know, the USSR or the Soviet Union uh, armed a lot of African independence movements fighting against, uh, you know, Western imperialism. So that was an interesting place historically, you know, even though th th there wasn't as much of a black community. And then I always just loved Stockholm. So I just, I wanted to go there. And, and because of this singer songwriter, Stephen Simmons, um, I, I just, I really, I really wanted to see what, what, I, what, what I kind of, a place with a again with a history of socialism looked like and and, and to see what was was happening uh, there so you know that was a little bit frivolous i suppose but in the end you know uh, you know I, I, I felt that they were two of the most interesting chapters in many ways you know because what you what you're dealing with when when you don't plan you know i, I don't want to suggest that it's good not to plan but having said that i think what you get with afropean and the way that it's put together is is a kind of dalliance with the counterintuitive. So instead of me saying having this 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 theoretical construct in place, I think Frederick Jameson talks about this notion of like the you know the winner the winner losers when you have this tight theoretical construct in place that can't be proved wrong. Or, or, or is just too perfect. You don't let any any light in, you know. And I think what happened with Afropin is all these cracks, all these like these things that I didn't know. All these, these yeah, these counterintuitive moments. I mean, you know, some of the encounters that I had. You know, I spoke to members of the black community who were kind of anti-black in in some ways, you know. And I would never have sought those people out, but they had interesting stories too. Uh, and so I think that's what you get with Afropin. It's it's a bit of a bricolage of of experiences.
it was actually devastating because I, I wrote this book longhand. So I, I, it was in these, I came back with these five really tatty notebooks full of scribbles and ideas. I mean, to call it a first draft is is to, <laughs> to give it too much praise. It was not a first draft. It was just really rough travel notes. Um, and, and I keep them because they're kind of amazing objects, you know, because they've got like coffee stains from that that time I had a, a, a kind of Arabic coffee on the outskirts of Amsterdam or you know so they're interesting objects but I'd be mortified if anyone actually really poured through them and looked at their contents because it was really just me trying to work things out as I was on the road um and then when but when I started to type it all up um I kind of I worked you know so hard in the British Library uh you know I'd be going there as soon as it opened until eight at night or whenever it closed, I think it was eight at night on Thursdays and Fridays or something like that. And But I was there, you know, researching, writing. And then after sort of about three years of doing this, trying to make sense of, of my journey, of, of my travel notes and trying to place what I was hearing from people in history, um, I was like, you know, put the last line down. I was like, done. Wow. I've finished. You know? and, then, and then the word count was like 500,000 words. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 I haven't finished. Oh, what was it? Cicero who once, you know, apologized to a friend and said, you know, uh, I'm sorry this letter is so long. If I'd have had the time, I'd have written a short one, you know? And uh, and that was very much where I was. It was like, oh, I needed to spend more time honing it and, and getting the ideas down. Um, but really that began when on on the journey, I met up with, with Carol Phillips, uh, who, who wrote The European Tribe. And that was one of the few books that I really did see as like uh, a precursor to my work. And uh, and it just so happened, I mean, you know, the, the brilliant writer Colin Grant reviewed uh, Afropean for The Observer, and it was a very positive review. And then, you know, but privately, uh, he said, oh, you know, I, I cut a few things out. And, um, but privately, I, I just wanted to say, these were a few of my, my critiques uh, and, and it was nothing bad, but one of his critiques was almost that it it seemed too, like, what, what did, what was the word that he used? It almost seemed too perfect. You know, like, not perfect, but too, too uh, there was too much good luck. In fact, it reminds me, I think it was, uh, I forget which writer said this, but the, the, there's a travel writer who said, you know, a lot of travel writing fails because of the monotonous good luck of their authors. And of course, what the, what the writer's getting at is that, you know, people are making it up or they're, they're not being honest about what really happened. But with me, this, this journey happened over a period of six months. And then there was all this other stuff that I was making sense of. And so in some ways it was, even though I tried to keep a kind of languorous pace in a certain way, um, it really is, I guess, all the highlights of the book and, and one of the things that um was incredible is that it just so happened that when i was due to be in belgium well two things one zap mama was doing a performance and two carol phillips was doing a talk at the university of liege in belgium so so i had this this incredible look and that happened throughout my journey and i think really you know to get good luck, you have to look for it. So it was only good luck because I was searching for this stuff and, you know, you, you make your luck as you're traveling. But it was incredible. And meeting Carol Phillips in Belgium changed everything for me because he's a writer who doesn't, you know, pull up the, the ladder behind him. He left the ladder down in order so that I could climb up a little bit. And he's been a real mentor 
to me and opened so many doors. And as soon as I met him on on that same trip, uh, he was there and Linton Kwesi Johnson was there. And I met uh, uh, Sharmila Bismahoon, who, uh, you know, Wasafiri readers will know. Um, and, and, and that's meeting those people. They were just saying, oh, you should speak to this person, that person. And, and Sharmila put me in touch with the person who is now my agent, Suresh Ariatnam, who's just more than my agent. You know, I hate calling him my agent because he's he's just uh, he's, he's he's like my my lifestyle coach. <laughs> so it's a terrible description of him as well. But he just he's a friend, a mentor. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's done so much for me. I'll never as long as he is willing to be my agent, I'll, I'll never, ever leave uh, Suresh. Um, uh, but he was interested in my kind of messy notebooks and he saw something in it. And it was the first time actually meeting Carol. It was the first time that I met somebody you know, sometimes you speak to writers and they talk about, oh, Mrs. Johnson, who, you know, I was struggling, but Mrs. Johnson saw something in me or whatever. I never had that. Going through school, there wasn't any moment where anybody took me to one side and said, you might you might be a good writer or you might be creative or, you know. Uh, in fact, I remember once using, I was always interested in words. And I remember once using the word ubiquitous in class and my teacher telling me to stop showing off. You know, it was this constant feeling of, you know, that, that uh, you know, I, stop showing off. Don't get clever. Don't think you're something you're not. Um, a very kind of parochial uh, atmosphere. Uh, and um, Carol Phillips was the first person from a kind of older generation, uh, uh, you know, a scholar at Yale University, no less, who uh, saw something in me. Uh, and that was gave me so much confidence uh, and and then same with Sean Miller. And, you know, suddenly this kind of, you know, as you can probably guess, it's, it was very ramshackle. It was, I was all over the place. I didn't know what I was doing really. And of course, in the beginning, you know, in a very childish way, I thought oh, I'm going to get this huge advance. And, you know, but, you know, really, really that was hiding a deep uh, sense that um, it wasn't possible, actually. I, I kind of, you know, when you have those dreams that are ridiculous like that, it's a way of shielding yourself from the reality, I think. But they kind of instilled a bit of confidence in me. Uh, and, and you know, and then Suresh uh, helped me hone, hone my ideas down and we submitted to a bunch of publishers and Penguin came back and, um, and were interested. I'm kind of, I'm a bit of an autodidact, I suppose, in, in, in many ways. And, and I mean, this book is so intimately connected with my own life story. It's the closest, I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic. God, I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but it was the closest time. It's the closest I've ever come to feeling like I would be willing to die for something. Like, like creating this, crafting this book, it was like, I'm, this is, I mean, in the Native American tradition, they'd call it a vision quest, you know? And I was a, about that age when I was writing it, you know, around that age, you know, that coming of age, uh, you know, if you're looking into astrology, you know, when my Saturn returns and <laughs> I don't, don't want to get into all that fluff, but, you know, I was, I was, I was at an age where it was like, okay, it's, it's time to take things seriously now. And I'd been, 
sort of mooching around and, and, and playing around, getting involved in music journalism and stuff. But I'd, I'd, I'd never really taken myself seriously. And suddenly, I don't know what it was, but I started to, to really take myself seriously and, and work really hard. I mean, meeting Carol Phillips was really interesting because I saw Carol Phillips took me more seriously than I was taking myself. And, and so that was huge. And, and I do think that, you know, what you need in life is a group of people who will hold you accountable to feel like you're being watched in a certain way. And and to think that somebody like Linton Kwesi Johnson might be watching me, that Carol Phillips is watching me, that raises your game. That raises your game. And so I just worked like a demon, you know, uh, filled in all the gaps of my own knowledge, but then also uh, realised, you know, um, and, and I'm thinking of somebody like Raymond Williams here, you know, reading people like, like Raymond Williams to realise that actually... My own experience is valid too. And in those in those moments where I'm out of work, that is part of my writer's currency. You know, that is important. And that is not something that should just be dismissed. And and to look back at those, to look back at my own life and think, well, there is meaningful stuff here as well, uh, was also quite empowering. And so bringing those two things together is to think, well, my own experience growing up in a working class multicultural area on the outskirts of Sheffield uh, I'm going to take that seriously. And then I'm going to try and place, I'm going to try and connect with other people who've had a similar experience and then try and work out some of the energies that have been moving us throughout our lives, the external energies. And that's, yeah, what I was doing in the British Library for like four or five years. My, my, um, my, my, my partner uh, and her... Um, sister a anthropologist that came out of goldsmiths and they were both just saying oh like you basically did an unofficial phd like you know you did your schooling you know but but kind of in this unofficial way but then what's also amazing is that through this network you know i'm, I'm getting guided by some great teachers you know uh meeting up with people like paul gilroy who was who helped me out you know, uh, people like Stephen Small, who's a big scholar of, of Black Europe uh, and he's out in, in California at the minute, I think at, at Berkeley. Um, and so I was engaging with academics who were helping to guide me. Um, but I think finding ment a mentor or mentors has been really important in my life. I think that changed everything and that helped me. Uh, I think this is why, why people believe in God. I think this is what's so important. I, I'm not religious, but I think... The role that God plays is it's it's feeling like somebody's watching you when actually nobody else is. And that kind of can help move you forward when no one's paying any interest. If you believe that somebody is watching you, it kind of makes you conduct yourself in a certain way. And, and I think that that's what having mentors did for me. Craft is brought to you by Wasafrian Magazine and Queen Mary University of London with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music and sound design is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Al-Saraji. Tom Wilson does our editing. Interviews and the introduction are by me, Malachi McIntosh. And Afsana Nishat does everything else. See you next month. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as well, I wanted to capture kind of everydayness, you know? Um, so, I, you know, I wanted, rather than... I mean, there are photographs of, of of protests in there and stuff, but actually it was important for me to show like 
parents taking their kids to school mm-hmm. or people going on work commutes. And that's why there are a lot of images actually in, in metros. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of people are in transit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.